Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Rob Shaw runs a hunting non-profit called Mountain Pursuit out of Wyoming. He's a fifth generation Wyomingite. And wowza. This conversation went down some rabbit holes that I had no idea they were going to go down. Honestly, when I started this conversation, I didn't know where this conversation was going to go with Rob. I just knew it was going to be interesting. And so, I would suggest you listen all the way through to the end. Because bombs get dropped left, right, and center. And you'll understand very quickly what I mean by that. Looks like you are in a, is that your man cave, your garage? Looks like your garage. Yeah, I'm in, I'm in the garage, actually. The yeah, family's upstairs, so a little less noisy down here. Yeah, my savages are in the bed. I do not know if they are asleep. They're probably not asleep. They're probably reading. The littlest one actually started to draw art in his, at night in his room somehow. So. Yeah, my oldest does that sometimes. He kind of does projects and stuff, and then he kind of drifts off. We just kind of just let him go. We don't fight him, you know. That's right. 
That's right. Got to do what you got to do. Yes, Rob sir. Shaw, uh, introduce yourself to our audience, please. Uh, yeah, my name is Rob Shaw. I'm a, um, a fifth generation Wyomingite. I live in Hoback, Wyoming, and I'm the founder of Mount Pursuits uh, Hunting Nonprofit. And so the point of, because we're a nonprofit too, and uh, obviously nonprofits have missions, right, Rob? Yes, sir. And what is the mission of of Mountain Pursuit? We uh, we're kind of fighting for uh, for three things. Uh, first, for a strong Western uh, resident uh, preference for tags. <clears throat> we aspire to represent <clears throat> uh, Western state uh, resident hunters. Uh, second is wildlife conservation, and third is uh, what we call protect the hunt. And we think the future of hunting is in jeopardy, and we're working to protect it. All right, so let me, we, we like to have very hard-hitting conversations on here. And so you've presented three things. And the first, I may push a little bit on because I'm a non-resident to you being in Wyoming, right? So are you saying, Rob, that you don't want someone like me coming to hunt in the state of Wyoming? Um, not not necessarily, um, but I think it's kind of interesting. <clears throat> well, just to give you a different perspective. Sure. The explosion of <clears throat> social media and really all of hunting industry. For many of us in the West, it it just feels like an assault uh, from from non-resident hunters. You know, if you go to GoHunt.com, they're not, they don't, they don't cover Iowa and Missouri, right? They cover Alaska, Wyoming, Utah, those places. Um, uh, many, uh, you know, many uh, hunting industry uh, corporations, nonprofits, um, self-promoters on social media focus on Western state hunting. And so as a Western state resident, you see all this media and then you see it either on the tv or on your computer or, or internet and then you see it in the field um, with more and more um, non-residents and others uh, in your hunting areas and it feels like uh, there's an assault on on kind of the um you know the hunting here in the west and but so Rob, we, we think, don't have that kind of stuff, right? Like me in Mississippi, I don't have elk, I don't have antelope, I don't have sheep, I don't have moose, I don't have, I don't have any of that. So I'm an American citizen, and that's one of the privileges of being an American citizen is that you've got this massive country now that has this massive diversity that I can go hunt. Oh, absolutely. The uh, the wildlife is not owned by the state. Uh, the the uh, federal government the wildlife is owned by the state and so if i was to come to mississippi mm -hmm. i only hunted in a couple other states alaska and um missouri i had to turkey in missouri and i think my turkey tag was five times the price of the turkey tag for the local residents and 100%. the reason that i paid that was because that uh um wildlife is owned by the state um, mm -hmm. and not by the, the federal government. So there's a confusion, I think, by a lot of people who don't live in the West 
that because a lot of the hunting is on federal lands, which is owned by everybody in America, there's an assumption that the wildlife then is also owned by everybody in America, and it's not. The wildlife is owned um, by the by this residents of that state, whatever state you're in. And every state in the West, and really every state everywhere, has a strong resident hunter preference. Um, in places like Missouri or where you live, um, uh, there I don't know if there's draws for non-residents. So I assume there are, but if there aren't, we pay non-residents pay more than residents for tax. In the West, but isn't that um, the same in the West? That, Is that not the same in the West? Absolutely. No, absolutely. But in the West, where uh, wildlife may be may or may not be more limited, um, there's also a tag preference that generally goes to Western state hunters. So uh, in most Western states, for big game limited quota tags, 10% of the tags go to non-residents and 90% go to resident hunters. In some states, like Wyoming, that's not the case. Wyoming is one of the most liberal states in non-resident tag allocations, and we're working hard to get that changed. Um, we want to go to 90-10 like our neighboring states. Um, uh, Utah, uh, Colorado, for example, is very liberal uh, with their elk tags. 74,000 people, uh, non-residents, hunted elk in Colorado last year, including like 9,500 Texans and 6,500 Californians. <laughs> and uh, uh, around 33% of uh, elk uh, licenses were sold to non-residents, which if I was in Colorado, would drive me crazy. And we'd like to see that down to 10%. So. Yeah, we, we advocate for uh, resident Western State hunters. So, uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to think through this. That makes, you know, there are states that, as you said, very clearly are 90-10, right? That 10% of the tags are non-resident, 90% uh, are, are resident. Is there something to be said, though, to... I guess it's a conundrum, right? Because, I, again, I'm not a resident of the West, I'm a non-resident, and so I'm doing my due diligence by putting in tags for tags every year, buying my preference points, pumping money into the state wildlife system so that that wildlife can be there one day when I get it. And this year, I had seven preference points in the state of Wyoming, and I drew a non-resident antelope tag in Unit 47, and I've been doing that for seven years now, eight years, essentially. Um, how would that system that you're advocating for affect someone like me that just did exactly what I just did? Would it mean that I would have to wait 10 years to hunt antelope potentially in a good unit in Wyoming? That was, you know, obviously I, I waited and I had seven preference points. So, Well, I guess uh, first, did you apply for antelope tags in any other Western state? I did indeed. Which, which other state? Montana. I think that Montana, uh, Montana, if I understand correctly, has a 90-10 allocation for antelope. Wyoming has an 80-20 for antelope. So um, if we went to 90-10 for limited quota antelope tags, there would be half the, half the available number for limited quota first draw tags for resident for non-resident hunters. How, how that would uh, impact you, I'm not sure, but uh, it would likely increase the time it would take for you to draw. But just so you know, um, I haven't drawn an antelope, well, I do an antelope, uh, doe antelope tag this year, 
um, in many parts in western Wyoming. Uh, Wyoming has the most antelope of any state in the nation. Right, and, right. And, and uh, it's not a given drug. In all antelope, you can't, in, even for residents, you can't buy an over-the-counter antelope tag. Um, the reason is antelope are so Yeah, didn't that change like two two years ago? Didn't it change two years ago that you had to, all the leftovers went into another draw or something like that? Well, this is the first draw, not not a leftover tag, but a first draw tag. Um, okay. So, so like we can, uh, residents can uh, go, I can go down to the sporting goods store and get an over-the-counter general tag for elk and deer. I can't do it for antelope. The reason is because antelope are so easy to kill. Um, if, if the Game and Fish Department didn't uh, regulate it, um, we wouldn't have many antelope left. <laughs> uh, but even in, in my in areas in western Wyoming, there's several where even for residents, it's a 30% or less chance to draw. So uh, I guess the, the idea is that here we are residents. We have the smallest population of any state in the West. We have the most antelope of any state in the West. And I have a one in three chance in my area is a chance to draw. And, and so we want to increase that by, you know, in, limiting the number of tags going to non-residents to what Montana's doing. Yeah, it would, it would make it, uh, it'd make it longer for you to draw. Absolutely. But you certainly don't seem to mind because you're putting in for Montana, which is 90-10 allocation anyway. I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that there's such a huge, incredible demand for these tags, um, if you don't want to, if you get pissed off in Wyoming and don't want to put in because we want to do what Montana does, believe me, there's people in line who will who will take your spot in line. So let me ask this: if if um, two things come to mind, number one, I'll, I'll tackle the first one first, and then and go to the next one. If it's an eighty twenty system right now, now that's, and you've that's got a one in three chance, that's a let's just clarify that it's eighty twenty for. Moose, antelope, deer, it's 84-16 for elk, which is just about higher than any other state except Colorado. It's actually 75-25 for bighorn sheep, which is criminal, um, honestly. Um, and we, we, we're, we think we've got that changed. And I think it's 80-20 uh, for bison, which is also criminal. So it's, well, I mean, it's a little bit confusing that way, but. But to go ahead, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, no, that's fine. In in, in any eighty twenty scenario, I'm just I'm, let's use the antelope. Go back to antelope as an example. You said a one in three chance of you drawing in an eighty twenty scenario. What does that go to in a ninety ten scenario? Does it go to a one in two chance, or is it almost still a one in three chance? Uh, it's not a significant increase. Um, I, I assume that it would increase my chances of draw. I don't. I don't know specifically. But statewide, it would probably increase the, the chances of drawing, not taking like individual areas, by maybe five to ten percent for a resident hunter. But that's one way to look at it. it. Doesn't seem like it makes a huge impact. But I think it's three thousand more limited quota antelope, which are primarily buck antelope tags, that would be going to resident hunters, that wouldn't be going to non-resident hunters. So you seem mm -hmm. like a, a nice guy, and. Uh, but for my, I'm a fifth generation Wyomingite, <laughs> and I I just assumed uh, another Wyomingite from Casper or Sundance or Jackson or Sheridan gets the tag that you're getting this year instead of you. No offense to you, I'm just a homer. I like taken. Wyoming, I like not taken. Not taken. So it's, it's no no offense to you. It's not personal. 
Um, so yeah, so from a percentage perspective, in odds, it's not huge for me, but for those 3,000 um, Wyomingites who get a buck home tag uh, who aren't getting it now, it makes a big deal for them. Or the 30, uh, just the 30 Wyoming residents who get a once-in-a-lifetime bighorn sea tag, which are going to non-residents now, it makes a significant difference for them. So, so yeah, it makes a difference. Let me ask this, because um, I don't know the answer to this, and I'll hold the second part of my question because another one popped into my brain. From a bighorn sheep perspective, we know bighorn sheep is big money, right? Um, are the tag licenses for a non-resident the same, an equivalent to a resident tag, or are they double, triple the amount of money? I don't know. I'm, I'm... Uh, yeah, they're significantly more expensive for non-residents, and we're trying to make them more expensive. Wyoming's uh, non-resident tag prices right now are not at the market level based on what's going on in the other Western states. But yeah, just like every place, they're significantly more expensive. You know, for example, a, uh, uh, a uh, elk tag cost me like 65 bucks and a limited quota type one elk tag, a big a bull elk tag for you in a, uh, in a really desirable area would be like, I think it's 12, 12 or 1300 bucks. So yeah, it's significantly more expensive for mm-hmm. non-residents. Mm-hmm. But the so demand we... is so crazy. The demand is so crazy that yeah. um, there's some of these tags that are auctioned. And when, a, when, a, when a, one of those elk tags is auctioned off, it brings in between fifteen dollars and $25,000. Uh, Wyoming Bighorn Sea Tag brings in uh, right around $100,000. And that was a couple years ago. If it's mm-hmm. just up for auction. Are you okay with those... Are you okay with those auction systems going to non-residents? No, we uh, th- right now in, in Wyoming there's two types. Even of with all systems. that money coming in, even with that all that money coming in, right now in Wyoming there's there's two types of auction systems. Well, there's there's three types really. The Wyoming Game and Fish Department does their own, and I think they give out one or two tags a year. Mm-hmm. And then in Wyoming, the governor gets five tags um, for like sheep bison anyway and uh he the bulk of that money goes to a nonprofit, which is headed by a board and that board divvies up that money for studies within wyoming where the game and fish department the university of wyoming and other entities compete for money and the third way is in wyoming each game and fish commissioner gets eight tags that uh, he or she gets to donate to any nonprofit they want, and and though and the and the nonprofit gets to keep all that money. So we are against all the governor tags and all the game and fish uh, commissioner tags. The reason is because the money generated from that wildlife income, a lot of it isn't going to the game and fish department. Uh, for example, we filed a lawsuit recently where one of the, the Game and Fish, or two of the Game and Fish Commissioner tags this year were donated to the Wyoming Outfitters and Guides Association, which is a nonprofit, but it's not a charitable nonprofit. And they're actually fighting us on the 90-10 allocation thing, tag allocation thing. Um, and we've had, we've done some research on this and several of the, the commissioner tags have gone to nonprofits that have nothing to do with wildlife, nonprofits who aren't in Wyoming. Some have been donated to churches, Baseball teams, music festivals—it's <laughs> just stupid. And we think all the money generated from Wyoming's wildlife should go to the Wyoming Game and Fish Department um, for their use. 
So we're not necessarily against auctions at all. We think it's a great way to raise money, but that money should go to the game and fish department, not to private nonprofits. It sounded like, though, that the governor tags does go to science and research tied to wildlife in Wyoming. Kind of. First of all, the the way it works is they, they give these tags to a nonprofit in Wyoming. The nonprofit finds another nonprofit to sell the tag. So let's say the governor gives five bighorn sheep tags to this. It's called the Wyoming Wildlife Foundation. Wyoming Wildlife Foundation gives them to the Wild, Wild Sheep Foundation to auction off. And let's say that each of them goes for $100,000. Well, the Wild Sheep uh, Wildlife, <laughs> the Sheep Foundation gets a 10% of that. They get 10%. The Wyoming Wildlife Foundation gets 10% of it. So there's $20,000 off the top of wildlife money that's going to private entities. It's public money. It's Wyoming residents' money. And then the rest of $80,000 gets in this pool. But in this pool, it's not like all that money goes to Game and Fish Department studies. The Game and Fish Department has to compete with the University of Wyoming, other nonprofits, and others to get their studies funded. Um, from our perspective, that just we wonder. Really, but the study, the wildlife, it still studies in wildlife, right? It's still going for studies of wildlife, regardless of who is doing it. Because there's some good academics, right? There's some good research happening at the University of Wyoming that you don't want to look over from a wildlife perspective. Well, certainly. But the, uh, the, our concern with that is that this board is not uh, – the board that makes those decisions isn't full of biologists, and we're not sure that the priorities the Game and Fish Department have are the way the money is allocated. Uh, for example, we just took a look, and, and seven of the eight uh, herds, six or se- six of the seven, I think, or seven of the eight um, big, game, uh, her- or big game species in Wyoming are below population objectives. Uh, our moose, our sheep, and our mule deer are in serious trouble. And our, our pronghorn, even though we have the most of any state, um, several of the herds are below population objective right now. So we just wonder, we, we think that uh, if there is one centralizing, which would be the Game and Fish Department, to prioritize where this money should be spent in terms of uh, wildlife studies, that would be better than having this board made up of politicians and, and, uh, and non-Game and Fish entities doing it. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, let me let me play devil's advocate for a second. So, if the governor tags, are, are you are you saying that the, the the governor tags and the commissioner tags have to go away, or redistribute them so that because obviously if they went away, there'd be a substantial chunk of money. Even though you said twenty percent gets skimmed off the top, or twenty thousand gets skimmed off the top, that's still eighty thousand dollars coming into your coffers. Well, none of the none of the commissioner tags money necessarily goes to wildlife studies. That makes sense. That makes sense. Uh, so yeah, we 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 like to see the commissioner tags go away. First of all, the commissioners are not elected, and they're each given right now based on these eight tags. And most of the tags go for elk, you know. So twenty thousand dollars times eight—that's one hundred sixty thousand dollars that an unelected official is given to any nonprofit that's his or, his or her choice. And again, if you take a look at some of the entities getting this funding, it has nothing to do with wildlife um, and nothing to do with wildlife in Wyoming. Um, and, uh, and secondly, uh, so we, the idea of auctioning off tags to raise money for the Game and Fish Department, uh, uh, you know, several, several uh, states, including Wyoming, has like a super tag program where 
you know, you know, uh, raffle. It raises lots of money. It's a great way to raise money for for the game and right. fish department. We just think it should go to the game and fish department. So we're not against auctioning off tags, uh, but we don't think that the money. Look, when it when a, a wildlife tag is sold, it's public money. It should go to the public coffers, the game and fish general, a fund. And then the Game and Fish Department can decide how it should be spent. It shouldn't go to a private nonprofit anywhere. Hmm. Understand mm-hmm. that the Wild Sheep Foundation, Rocky Mountain Elf Foundation, Backcourt, uh, Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, <laughs> several uh, other hunting nonprofits are on the dole right now because they get commissioner tags. And, uh, you know, they, they, they don't like us for that reason because we're against them. Mm-hmm. And, what, and one of the so problems with that is that if you are a – you know, if you're a, if you're a Wyoming Wildlife Foundation and you're getting fifty thousand dollars from a commissioner tag you get every year, uh, then you really have little incentive to stand up to the commissioners and make it a, a, a solid policy decision, right? You're on the dole. You're not going to sue them like we have, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let let me go back to the bigger uh, question that almost started this whole conversation, which is this idea that. We had that you. There's this like outpouring this this imme- immense amount of des- uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Not desire, but um, yeah, desire or want for these tags, right? As you said, that these the, the the amount of people wanting to hunt in Wyoming, non-residents, is incrementally going up, 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 up. But we know hunter numbers are going down. So is it just that we have this sort of this bubble of hunters getting into a stage of their lives that they now want to travel, they have resources and are able to, and that's why we're seeing this tag system, you know, explode to, you know, people having maximum preference points of 21, 22, 23, 24, 25. And there's lots of people at the 25 level. What do you think it's attributed to? if I understand correctly, that this this year the actual number of, or it was 2020, the actual number of non-resident applications in Wyoming for elk was down. The look, the number of resident applications for Type One elk tag was up. That could be COVID related. Right. What what I what I think has happened is that now because of social media, um, especially with the the self promoters and the industry putting out all these videos, hunting videos, and also um, companies like go hunt um, and and other companies that make it easier for people to apply. There's kind of this um, system where it's easier, you know, but before, I mean, applying for a Wyoming um, elk tag, for a non-resident, it's super complicated. <laughs> I'm not even too sure I understand it. Uh, but uh, uh, but these companies have made it easier. So I think there's, there's these, these different things are converging. Um, in addition to like hunting forums um, and, uh, you know, just, just that type of stuff. It's uh, I can tell you that as a resident hunter in, in one of the Western states, you just it just feels like, uh, you know, there's a lot and lots and lots of attention on you know, on, on this place that, that we honestly, you know, it's hard to make a living in Wyoming. We put up with uh, hard winters and stuff. And part of the reason that we do that is for hunting and fishing here. Um, so, um, and you're seeing some backlash here. I know um, recently you did a podcast on 
some of the actions that are going on up there in Alaska, which is uh, scary when it comes to federal lands. But it's also being mm-hmm. driven by locals. That's some of the backlash that you're seeing. Uh, Mountain Pursuit mm-hmm. and our work on 9010 is part of the backlash that you're seeing. Up in Idaho, mm-hmm. um, they've made some changes to their over-the-counter tag system because over-the-counter tags, you know, go hunt or, you know, Manila uh, or Newburgh or <laughs> one of these self-promoters would do a, you know, a, a, a podcast or a video on an over-the-counter uh, elk tag in a certain area in Idaho and pretty soon everybody's applying for it or buying it and the locals said, hey, it's getting crazy up here with non, non-residents. So there's, there's backlash. You know, it's coming. We have something we developed. We did a, a research a study on, we call it the Gohan effect. Um, and we just, we're seeing all these uh, stories and podcasts and videos on uh, mule deer hunting, over the counter mule deer hunting in Arizona in the winter. And we just did a, a study on how there was a relation between that media, social media attention and the number of over the counter tags sold. And recently I saw Arizona made some changes to that system and they're, they're pulling back the number of tags. So what you're seeing from me is, is reflected across many different uh, places in the West. But isn't that driven by wildlife biology? Isn't that driven by the population status that the game and fish department of the respective state, let's use Arizona as an example, they have an over-the-counter tag, for mule deer because they have a very they you know they believe they've got a large population they believe it's hard to hunt um and so that's why it's over the counter and any, anybody can buy a tag the tag goes to the coffers of conservation and go you know good luck to you and if those populations start getting to a point where they're like mm, you know based on the data based on the harvest statistics hey they we don't. We can't handle an over-the-counter tag anymore. So now it needs to go to a draw system or whatnot. Isn't that well, the point? Isn't that how uh, things work? Well, it would work if the uh, over-the-counter tags weren't advertised in in uh, in such a way. But so does it really example, matter from an adver- uh, What I'm trying to get at is, does it matter? Does it really matter if it's advertised well, it or not? Because it's over-the-counter. If you have a, uh, if you have a, if you're the uh, wildlife, if you're the the game and fish biologist in the salmon district um, who manages elk up there, and you've had over-the-counter tags in the past, and then mm-hmm. you know there's a, a media story and a couple videos and movies yep. about these, and then all of a sudden you go from selling 25 non-resident over-the-counter tags to 450. The next mm-hmm. year, that's a problem, and what drives that uh, sales is the media exposure. But why is that a problem, Rob? That's what I'm trying to drive at. In that, if uh, if if there's over the counter, 450 went in. They probably didn't all kill, but they obviously killed more than typical. Isn't that the point of management? Isn't that the point of the biologist to say, okay, this is how much got taken out of this unit. We cannot have an over the counter system here next year because the population. What got- do you? What do you? What do you hunt in uh, uh, Mississippi? White-tail deer. That's pretty much like a staple do, down here. Do you hunt in public land? Uh, not really. There's not much good public ground around where I am. Well, let's say that you did. Okay. <laughs> or that you go to get, <laughs> or you go and, and you have a stand set up, 
And usually, you know, you go to the stand, you're pretty damn lonely, a couple local guys. Mm-hmm. And then the next year you show up and there's 35 guys from Wyoming walking mm-hmm. around your woods. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, that's yeah, a you're not happy. Well, and what are we going to yeah, do? Yeah, technically it is. We're going to call up the Game and Fish Commission. That's right. And we're gonna that's get, right. And that's, just what, and that's exactly what happened in Idaho. But I don't know if that's a problem, Rob. And and, and the reason and, – and this is me just playing conversation, right? This is – in my brain, it's almost like – and you're right. You're right in that it's almost they found out what I had, right? They found out they being whoever. They found out the No, 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 no. They, 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 did, they didn't find it out on their own. They no, didn't no, go that's out true. There, they didn't go out there and do the scouting like you did. They didn't put in no. the years to learn to play. You no, they had some douchebag self-promoter who uh, who went there and did it and wrote a story about it that got published by Outdoor Life or Western Hunter Magazine or Go Hunt or whatever. Yeah, they didn't find that out on their own. If they had earned it, that's no problem. So when when push comes to shove, what I'm hearing you say, and I've heard this a lot from other, when you start you know digging around and, and pushing the pushing some paper around. It it comes down to it comes down to from a hunting perspective, are we truly doing it for the right reasons? And when you start saying what you're saying, Rob, if you're gonna do it for the right reasons, do the do it the right way. Do your research Go find the places, make some phone calls. But on the counter, that's why there's hunt forums. And that's why you have all these things so you can get the information. You've got technology today and you've got these hunt app application systems. You've got these people that you follow that, that you like. Well, you're, just, you're, just seeing the, you're just seeing the backlash against the, the technology. It's, you mm-hmm. know, we represent mm-hmm. it come in other states and it's growing. So... Mm-hmm. I don't think that as some, if you've a person who's taken advantage of the technology to realize that there's not going to be a backlash against it is naive. No, that, that, that's and, and fair And the backlash is going, to, is going to come from the locals who live there. And so the backlash to you would be a local that's lived there for forever, who's used to an over-the-counter tag type mm-hmm. system, pretty much has the place to himself is now being pushed into a corner that is I have to draw a tag instead of what I'm used to being over the counter and people are coming in here and cluttering up from a a number of people perspective cluttering up my woods well I don't know this it's the idea that you used to having it alone but if you're used to hunting in a non-crowded place and all of a sudden it's crowded, <laughs> that's an issue. We don't hunt. I mean, it's no fun to hunt when all you see is orange. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I think it's... it's so how you know, do we... And the, and the problem with it is, is it's... Here's, this is the interesting thing about the self-promoters, right? 
the self-promoters are after eyeballs. And mm-hmm. and the way they're going to get eyeballs is to kill shots, to kill lots of animals. And pretty soon, they're going to have to start giving out place needs. Because if you hunt someplace and you don't tell exactly where it is, the mother guy's going to do it, and he's going to get more eyeballs. So there's going to be a, a mm-hmm. and I've already seen this, uh, there's going to be a natural, um, competitive um, tendency amongst the self-promoters to start giving out specific places. It's, so it's going to get worse mm-hmm. before it gets better. But mm-hmm. w- w- one of you, well, I'll just stop right there. <clears throat> <laughs> I guess, I guess, Rob, my biggest, and this is, comes from a place of sort of of self, and maybe it's a little selfish on my part. But I think I'm okay saying this because I think it, you'll understand my perspective. I, I, I came to this country with nothing, right? I came to this country as a South African. And now I'm privileged to be an American. And all of the things that come with being an American, the thing that you have, this, this great expanse of habitat, this great expanse of land, this great expanse of wildlife, and more importantly than any of that is this great expanse of opportunity. And what I'm hearing you say is, I don't want you to have that opportunity where I live. Does that make no, sense? What you're hearing me say, if you want the same opportunity that I have, move to Wyoming or move <laughs> to the Western state and, so that, and become pretty- a resident. Because there's plenty of people doing that right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, and, and bring your talents with you and, you know, and, you know, suffer through, you know, suffer through the winters and everything else. So, yeah. I mean, it's, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't expect to go to Mississippi and pay the same that you pay for a hunting efficient tag, you know, or know exactly mm-hmm. where you go. Right? I have mm-hmm. some respect for mm-hmm. you as a local resident there. You know, mm-hmm. that, that's what we get. Believe me, some of the the comments we get from non-resident hunters are incredible. I mean, they think they're entitled to, you know, you know, you know, <laughs> every, you know, every place in the West. Uh, and it's, I mean, it's federal land, yes, but the wildlife is not federally owned. It's owned by the state. It's that simple. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it should be no, you make owned a by good the point. state and it should be for the major benefit of this residence of that state. That's, it's that, it's that simple. I don't expect to go to Mississippi and pay in-state tuition at the university of, you know, Mississippi state, right? <laughs> if I'm not a resident of Mississippi. And that's a great school. And, th- and that's a great school, by the way. Great school. I was a professor there in the wildlife fisheries department. Um, you. But you make a good point. You make a really good point that, you know, you live in the state, you live in the state for a specific reason. Um, and one of those reasons is to enjoy the benefits that that state has to offer. And people choose where they get to live. And with that choice comes certain privileges. And in the West, it so happens to be wildlife and fishing and the great outdoors and the great expanse. Um, and so, yeah, I think that you know, you're perfectly right. In, and I love the example that you're giving, which is comparing Wyoming to Mississippi. And, you know, we have the same issue here in Mississippi when it comes to turkey hunting, that 
next door state, Arkansas, our turkey season opens earlier than most. They come over and they hunt a bunch of our public woods for turkey. And this, the commission is currently considering keeping that closed for the first three to four weeks uh, from a non-resident perspective to your exact point. So you're right. I like, I like your thought pattern and um, I can understand your frustration. So many, many non-resident hunters don't. <laughs> I understand that, that the non-resident hunters have lots of people in their camp. They have the outfitting industry. They have the lodging industry. Um, they have many of the nonprofits. Um, you know, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation and Backcountry Hunters and Anglers and Mule Deer Foundation are all national organizations. None of them have, uh, uh, none of them have taken a position on 9010 in, in, uh, in Wyoming, right? They don't want to piss mm -hmm. off their non-resident, um, uh, folks. So yeah, mm -hmm. there's, uh, the, the non-resident hunters definitely have the state that we're having, a, or the, the fight that we're having about 9010 in, in Wyoming is between us and the land, the stock growers and the, uh, commit and the, uh, outfitters and the lodging industry. It's not between us and non-residents. They're all advocating for mm -hmm. non-residents. They want to keep the, the higher percentage of non-resident tags. And it's mm -hmm. about money. Isn't it every, isn't everything about money, Rob? Yes, it is. <laughs> Everything's about money. <laughs> well, Rob, I, uh, I certainly had no idea what kind of conversation this is going to turn into. And, um, I quite, quite enjoyed it. Um, any last words on your heart? Oh, we're not going to get any other stuff, huh? Because the, uh, the, the well, protect the hunt stuff is more important. Well, let's talk about protect the hunt then. Let's go. And, and I think a lot of that conservation stuff is, is different um, for sure than what other nonprofits are doing. Here's the, here's the thing about hunting. Animals suffer and die for our sport. And I had Would you not, call it a sport or a lifestyle? That, that's a good point. Is it a lifestyle? Is it a sport? Whatever. But unless, unless you're doing it for subsistence, like some of the natives up in Alaska, you don't necessarily need to do it for food so the problem from a hunting perspective politically is that it's hard to defend that i have not come up with a good defense for that i have not read a good defense for that i love to hunt i can't explain what it means to me in real world in, in, concisely and you know in a in a way that addresses that argument against hunting. What we're seeing, I think, politically in the United States is a growing and strengthening animal rights movement. Mm -hmm. You'll see it at the grocery store with cage-free eggs, with grass-fed beef. Um, uh, you see it uh, in fashion with 
uh, movements, uh, you know, with veganism away from leather, um, with, uh, you know, fashion models not willing to wear real fur anymore. And in the hunting world, you're seeing it really uh, strongly in efforts to curtail any type of predator hunting. And um, there's been several surveys out to talk about uh, American um, or studies about American attitudes toward hunting. And right now, over 80% of Americans support hunting if it's for food or for wildlife right. management or for right. protecting people. Um, a significant less proportion um, uh, support hunting if it's just for sport or the challenge. And even fewer hunting support hunting if it's for trophies. And uh, I think the animal rights movement is uh, is using um, their successful, largely successful efforts uh, to curtail predator hunting and limit it. And, and, and pretty soon they'll be turned into ungulates. They've already done that uh, in Utah or in Oregon with their ballot initiative there, which would uh, restrict mm-hmm. hunting significantly. And so from my perspective, uh, right now, I think hunters need to hunker down and quiet up. Um, we need to we need to hunker down and, and quiet up, and uh, you know how we feel about DDD when it comes to deglorifying, demonetizing, and depublicizing, you know, hunting. And um, right now, it's uh, there's way too much of the gore and glorification on social media and media right now. We need to we need to quiet up because we do not have a really good argument um, for to, to to answer, you know. The fact that animals suffer and die for our lifestyle or our sport, whatever you want to call it. Um, and I don't think you can answer that emotional argument with numbers. I don't think a good, a good answer to that is to point out, you know, how much money hunting funds the game of fish agencies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's a, a numbers, uh, um, reply to an emotional argument and those never work. So what about the emotional, out. the emotional side of hunting? What about the emotional side of hunting? In that, I, I look, I get what you're saying in terms of, you know, I think hunting's in the closet right now, and I think what you're advocating for is let's stay in the closet, close the door, and, and let's not say anything. I, I would say the opposite. I would say that I think we need to. I think we've got a PR problem. I think you would agree with that. I think that we have a PR problem because of the fact that hunting content is built for hunters. It's not built for non-hunters. But I think that fact alone should make us make our voices even louder in that if we can show who we truly are, as you say, it's difficult to, to put like your finger on exactly why you hunt. But there's emotional components to why you hunt. There's spiritual components to why you hunt. Sometimes it's for food. Yes, we don't have to hunt for food any longer, but it's the convenience of food being in the grocery store that has disconnected most of society away from being hunting, being hunters. So the idea of telling the consequence of hunting emotionally, spiritually, and science, wildlife management facts, you blend all that together, that's a very, very powerful story that I don't think we should shy away from. So, if I was to say that to you again, 
The fact about hunting is that animals suffer and die for your lifestyle, for your sport, whatever it is, you don't need it for food. How do you justify that? Oh, quite simply. Animals suffer and die all day, every day. It's not just because of my lifestyle. It's not just because of the thing that I do. When you look at the number of animals that I actually take, it's very, very, very few animals at the end of the day. And when I do take that animal, I take that animal with the least suffering I could possibly give it, as ethically as I possibly can take it. And I utilize the animal as much as I possibly can. On the counter, if you're saying I shouldn't be doing that any longer, yet I need to go to the grocery store and get my meat there, how is that any different? That actually, that's actually worse in that I have no idea how that animal lived, have no idea how that animal died, have no idea who processed that food, have nothing, I know nothing about that animal. I prefer to hunt because I know, I understand that yes, you cannot get over the fact that I killed this animal. Okay, I can't do anything about that. But the cycle of life inherently has death in it. Everything is going to die. So if you can capture that essence of why something is going to die, would you not want to do it in the a mechanism in which you imbue the least suffering, as painless as possible, as quickly as possible? I think anybody would, regardless if you're talking about hunting, the answer would be yes. And so that's how I, I that's justify a, it. I think that's a great answer, but I, I know that you, well, I don't want to speak for you, but I assume you share the concerns that I have with hunting media right now. Well, that's why we with, built Blood Origins, right? The, that's the right. whole point of why we built Blood Origins, is that Blood Origins is not built for you, Rob Shaw. Right. Blood yeah, right Origins now, is built I, for non-hunters. Here, here's, here's a quick difference between the, the hunting industry and the, the livestock industry. The livestock industry does not video on purpose livestock guys in feedlots killing cattle with pneumatic guns <laughs> and watching them ride them. It doesn't, it doesn't video the, you know, the poultry going through the you know, hanging upside down, going through the machine that electrocutes them and kills them. To get that kind of media, the uh, animal rights activists have to sneak inside those factories and, you know, take the video clandestinely. The hunting industry puts that stuff out every day for anybody to see, and they do it in the worst way. And it's not just the fringes of the industry. It's the major manufacturers um ethically quick as possible that may be you but it don't challenge me right now to to find 50 youtube videos by celebrity hunters of animals getting away gory kill shots long distance uh unethical shots uh trophy pictures with animals that have no context the hunting industry is committing political suicide it's political suicide. And when we say hunker down and quiet up, that's what we mean. We, we would like to see, you're right, the hunting industry right now makes content for hunters. We'd like to see that behind some kind of wall. 
a paywall, a private group wall, something so that non-hunters can't come up on it right now. We're going to be asking Facebook and Twitter and all those guys and YouTube to start putting that stuff behind some type of wall so it just can't show up in the non-hunters feed easily. But right now, that the hunting industry is is really a, a huge political threat to the future of hunting. That's a good point. That's a good point. Yeah, and again, and I, that's why we built that origins our, the way that we Our, our efforts are trying to change it. And, and we're, mm-hmm. we're with or with you. We've developed social media guidelines, you know, protect the hunt pledge for the uh, industry. Um, we've identified, you know, the top 25 um, self-promoters on the internet, trying to shame those guys to stop doing what they're doing. Um, we've come with a lot of criticism for doing that. But really, mm-hmm. we think those guys are if you're if you are concerned about the future of hunting, then some of that stuff you know those people are putting that stuff out are your direct political opponents mm-hmm. well uh, certainly again i I know that um you certainly challenged some people's thoughts here rob um, I love the fact that you ask direct questions and I get to answer very directly back to you. Um, it's my answer? kind of conversation. It's my kind of conversation. I love it. I actually was having a conversation with one of my cameramen who is a non-hunter. And he says, what would you say if a vegan came up to you and said, I hate hunting? I said, well, ask me. Be the vegan. Let's go. And, you know, we like to be pushed. We like to understand I think it's it's a good, it's good for us as hunters to really explore these things about like why we do what we do, and be able to answer those tough questions when asked about us, um, to be able to defend this idea, this lifestyle. I don't call it a sport; I call it a lifestyle because sport inherently has this like win lose kind of scenario, right? And that we're this big winner, we get this trophy, and the animal is the loser. Uh, and lifestyle is more embedded in what we do constantly right you're a hunter 365 seven days a week you are a hunter you don't just turn it on when you go outside and it turns off when you're inside so um no i appreciate the conversation i appreciate the discussion do you think that uh like in wyoming right now hunters and anglers are called sportsmen and i wonder about that <clears throat> you know uh some of the manufacturers, they're sponsored hunters. They call them athletes. And I wonder about that too, because it puts it in the sports, right? Is a, is a backcountry hunter really an athlete? I've kind of found that since I started hunting, I move a lot slower in the mountains than I did when I, or when I, when I started, uh, I guess, uh, bow hunting than I did when I, you know, before I was bow hunting, most of my mountain time was, you know, I was moving as fast as I could. I think there's some interesting things that we need to we need to think about when it comes to those those uh, those things. The idea of a lifestyle, I understand what you're saying. I'm not sure lifestyle is the right the right way to to put it. I don't know what the tri- right term would be. You know, it's mm-hmm. my lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I have had someone say to me that hunting and grass-free uh, beef and cage-free poultry. They, they're aligned, right? So they're, they're moving towards mm-hmm. the same thing. You're getting a food where the animal gets to live as naturally as possible. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, it's complicated. Yeah. Well said. Yep, very complicated. Very, very complicated. Well, Rob, I appreciate your time. It's getting close to my bedtime over here in Mississippi. Um, but I look forward to visiting your great state of Wyoming uh, as a non-resident because I've never hunted an antelope before ever, period. And this will be my first time. Are you bow hunting or uh, are you uh, rifle hunting? I'm using a boomstick. I am not a bow hunter. I like to say I bow hunt. I am not a bow hunter. Yeah, but bow hunting antelope, if you spot and stock them, I, I think I had over 60 stocks before I finally got my antelope with a bow. Wow. On a, you know, uh, but I mean, it's an amazing way to, to, to become a better hunter. And the other thing about it is it's by far my favorite type of bow hunting because it's action packed. I mean, it's all day mm-hmm. long. You don't have to really look for the animals, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. and so you see something, you go stalk it. If you get busted, you just see something else and go stalk it. It's, it's all day long. <laughs> I can't wait. I, I really can't yeah. wait. Thanks so much for your time, sir. Appreciate it. No, I appreciate you, Rob. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.